Welcome back to Bible Time, 1 Thessalonians 5, and again, verse 14. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly. We looked at this verse yesterday as a complete verse. Warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. Today, by the grace of God, we're going to dive into warn them that are unruly and take a deeper look at that phrase um, in a in a much broader aspect than what is in the direct context of this scripture. And this here is very important today. The word unruly in the Bible um, is only used four times. We're going to look at those four times real quick, and then we're going to jump into a big subject. I'll tell you more about it in just a second. This is a wonderful subject, an exciting subject, and a powerful subject that you need to understand. Um, Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray for wisdom and understanding, unction and utterance. I pray that you would anoint your word, that you would exalt your word. You said that you have exalted your word above your name. So we ask you to do that again today, Lord God, and exalt your word in our hearts, Father, above your name, so that we will put it in its proper place, Father. Protect us from the unruly and keep Keep us from being unruly in Jesus' name. Amen. So here it says, warn them that are unruly. Yesterday, whenever we discussed unruly, we used for examples, some silly examples, some light examples, some small examples of unruly behavior in the church house. Some of those examples, go to Titus, some of those examples that we used dealt with the tongue and the use of the tongue. Here in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6, it says, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. This is speaking of ordaining elders in every city. And one of these qualifications for an elder is that his children must not be accused of riot nor unruly. Now in verse 10, it tells us more about this word unruly, for there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped whose mouth, follow along in your Bible, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Hold your place in Titus. Go to James chapter 3, and let's look at that word unruly in its final mention in the Word of God. The book of James chapter 3 and verse 8. Here he says of the tongue, but the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. The tongue is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. This gives us the sense of untamable in its context. So if you tame the tongue, it would be ruly. It would be brought under rule. It would be brought under governance. Unruly means out from under authority. Unruly means out from under government governance. And the context that it's used in here more than any other in its four mentions is in the use of the tongue and as an unruly evil full of deadly poison. Here's a tongue that blesses God, even the Father, and therewith curse we men which are made after the similitude of God. Out of the same mouth proceedeth blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not so to be. This tongue is a fire, a world of 
iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. So this tongue then is unruly. And in Titus you have men whose mouths must be stopped, who are unruly men, vain talkers and deceivers, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. So these unruly children then, these are children who will not be governed, children who will not obey their parents, children who will not obey their daddy, disqualify their daddy if they are characterized by their unruliness. Every child disobeys sooner or later. The best of children, even at even at the very, very best children, if they don't do it publicly, will do it sometimes privately or at least in their hearts. But for someone to be characterized as un- unruly and be the child of an ordained elder, which is a pastor, that child then is disqualifying his his dad, his father, according to the flesh. And these men who grow up unruly then become false teachers and false preachers. And there's, there's a direct correlation here because pastor's kids grow up around the church. They grow up around the Bible. Pastor's kids have a lot of influence. Pastor's kids are the most likely, and this doesn't necessarily hold out statistically because the devil hates pastor's kids and Wrexham, but they're the most likely and naturally approved by a congregation to take over when their when their father dies. I preached a, um, for a man recently who is his father-in-law had been the pastor of the church for many, many years, and then the church selected him to be their pastor when, he, when this man's father-in-law moved on. That's a natural progression. It's natural and normal. So um, here, these, especially they have the circumcision that are unruly are subverting houses, pastor's kids grow up being taught, and pastor's kids grow up around doctrine, and pastor's kids grow up around the church and the functions of the church, and they know the Bible from the front to the back, but if they're not ruly, if they're not governed, then they will teach false doctrine for filthy lucre's sake. They will will go aside after strange doctrines and false doctrines, and they'll teach lies about God and His Word The Bible says their mouths must be stopped. So there's a connection here, even though um, the connection isn't the main thing we're looking at. The unruly children, the unruly talkers, and the unruly tongue in 1 Thessalonians 5 must be warned. The Bible says in Ephesians 5, let no man deceive you with vain words. That's Ephesians 5, 6, part of that verse. So here we are to warn them that are unruly. What is the main area of governance that can be brought to bear to bring these children into subjection to their fathers, to bring these vain talkers into subjection to um, truth and doctrine and that can bring this unruly tongue that's a fire into subjection to God. The main thing and the only thing is the Bible, the Word of God. They that are unruly are unruly because they are not subjected to the Bible. They are not governed by the Bible. We're going to look today at some rules of Bible interpretation. We're going to look today at the Bible and rules for interpreting the Bible. And these basic rules for understanding the Bible are going to be based on three laws, first of all. And the three laws that we're going to look at, um, we I'll just brush over the first two, just give them to you in short. You've heard a lot about them, and Lord willing. And then we're going to try and jump into the third law, 
and really hammer it. The first law is that the Bible is God's word. You say, I know that already. I hope you do know that. The Bible is divine. That's what that means. The Bible is not human. It is divine. It is God's word. God is the source of the Bible. Go to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Here it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. That means that God spoke the Bible. If you go to Second Peter, Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That means that God is the one that uttered the words through the vessel that was the man. The man was the golden pipe through which the holy oil flowed. That typology holds true all throughout the Bible. The men that God used to pen the word of God, to speak the word of God, are not the source for the word of God. Paul is not the source for the Pauline epistles. Peter is not the source for first and second Peter. God wrote these books and he used men to do it. God spoke through the men. The men spoke to other men. Other men wrote down the words. Other men copied the words, but God is the source for the Bible. God is where the word came from in the past. God is where the word came from in the present because he preserved the word and God will be where the word comes from and the source for the word in the future because he will preserve his word. And that first part of the Bible being God's word, this great law of understanding the Bible that you must submit yourself to, or you will be shipwrecked. Do you hear me today? If you will not submit to the reality that the Bible is God's word, you will be shipwrecked. You will be unruly. This is your big number one rule. You've got to get down. God spoke the Bible in into existence. God inspired the word and God preserved the word. The two parts of the Bible being from God. You take one of those away and it's not, and it just, and the whole thing falls apart. If the Bible is something God preserved, but was sourced from men's hearts, then it's fallible. Then it's, um, then it's not perfect. It's not something that you can rest on. It's not something sure. If the Bible was perfect when in the originals, but God allowed men to mutate it and abuse it and kick it around and and destroy it over time, then the Bible is not trustworthy. If you do not have a perfectly preserved and perfectly inspired Bible, you do not have God's word. That's just how it is. Now, you can be one of these unruly and vain talkers whose mouths must be stopped and run around and say, well, it doesn't really matter. And all the virgin, all the different versions are essentially the same. And you can say all this stuff and your mouth must be stopped and God will stop it someday. And it's going to hurt when God stops it. God may let you flap it for a while, but he's going to stop it because God's word is sure. And the first rule you've got to get, you have have to get this ingrained in your soul is that the Bible is God's word. It's God's word by inspiration. Go to Psalms chapter 12. Let's let's run a few verses here. Psalms chapter 12. It's God's word by preservation. Psalms 12 and verse 6. 
The words of the Lord are pure words. Some people say, well, Jesus is the living word, and so he's the part that's perfect, and the written word isn't, and that's those vain talkers who are unruly. The Bible says the words of the Lord, lowercase w, words, plural, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. There is the preservation of the literal words of God, the literal words, the verbs, the nouns, the adjectives, the very parts of speech that came out of the mouth of God from the heart, from the mouth of God to the heart of man, from the heart of man out the mouth of man. These words that God inspired, God said he would preserve forever. Go to Psalms 119 and verse 89. We're going to try and hurry, the Lord being my helper today, because we have a lot to cover. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Now, this was written in the Old Testament. We don't have time to study all these out. Before Jesus became flesh, the word, lowercase w, was settled in heaven. And then Jesus left heaven and came to earth. The capital W word was made flesh, and yet the lowercase w word was settled in heaven while Christ the living word was on earth. The Bible says thou hast exalted thy word lowercase w above thy name. Well, Jesus Christ became a man and the word became flesh. The literal words that Jesus Christ spoke remained settled in heaven and never humbled them Themselves. Do you hear me today? Jesus humbled himself and was found in fashion like a man. But Jesus's words, the words of the living God were settled in heaven and never humbled themselves and never will. Thou hast exalted thy name, thy word, it says, thou hast exalted thy word above thy name. If we have to preach this in more than one, we'll do it. But we've got to preach what God gave us. And there are unruly and vain talkers whose mouths must be stopped. And you've got to get it settled in your heart. You've got to get some laws. You've got to get some rules that are binding, that will hold you whenever the storm comes. So the word of God is God's word by inspiration. It's God's word by preservation. Let's look at a couple more verses here. Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 5. Proverbs 30 and verse 5, unruly and vain talkers say, well, it was God's word, but man has taken away from it and man has added to it. Let's look at a couple of verses about that. Um, Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee and thou be found a liar. You say, well, God will slap him on the wrist, but he's going to let him desecrate his word. Let's look at Ecclesiastes 3. 14, thou unruly and vain talker. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 14. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it that men should fear before him. God doeth it. It says that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything 
anything taken from it, and God doeth it that men should fear before him. Let's read that verse again. This is talking about God and his work, and God's words are God's work. His greatest work that he's exalted above his name is his word. And it says, I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it, and God doeth it that men should fear before him. Go to Matthew chapter 24, and then we'll run back to Isaiah, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35. Here it says in the word of God, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Heaven and earth shall pass away. Matthew 4, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. Matthew 4, and I have the wrong verse. That would be... Matthew, um, yes, Matthew 4, 4. But he answered the devil. Jesus here answers the devil and said, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. God has given us every word that we might live thereby. Matthew 5 and verse 8. Matthew 5 and verse 8. Now that one is the wrong verse. 18, Matthew 5, 18, For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. That is a promise down to punctuation. That is a promise down to the most basic marks that can be made in the Hebrew language that he's referencing there in that text. And he says, Not one jot nor one tittle shall pass from the law till all be fulfilled. We'll deal with translation later. For some of you that are wondering about it, we'll get there. But let's hold on to the concept and the laws that you have to get in your heart. You have to get it settled that God's word is God's word and that God's word is God's word in inspiration and that God's word is God's word in preservation. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 8. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth. But the word of the Lord, but the word of our God shall stand forever. The grass withereth and the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Go to 1 Peter 1, 23. 1 Peter 1. Verse 23, it says here, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. And here's a reference to Isaiah 40, for all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And look at what your Bible says. Look at it. First Peter chapter 1 verse 25. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. 
The Bible stands. The Bible is God's word. The Bible is sure. Now, God used man to preserve the word. God used man to write the word, but God is the one. God is the source of the word. God inspired the word, and God is preserving the word. Go over to 2 Timothy. Let's look at just a couple of verses there about man's involvement in God's word. We'll probably hit them more than once. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Here Timothy was instructed by the Apostle Paul to hold fast the form of sound words that he heard from Paul. Chapter 2 and the thing, uh, verse 2, And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. So we see here God's plan for the preservation of his word. Chapter 4 and verse 13, he says, The cloak that I left at Troas with Carpus, when thou comest, bring with thee and the books, but especially the parchments. And here we see the very fallible, the very weak, the very destroyable, the very questionable means that God used to preserve his word, that God requires you to trust that he has preserved his word, because here God had his word preserved from man to man and from parchment to parchment down throughout the ages that God's word is not some kind of spiritual ephemeral fantasy that floats around in, in some other dimension but that God's word is this word that by our gospel is preached unto you and that it is encapsulated first of all in parchments and then down throughout the ages in books and that God has used man and paper and ink to preserve his word. That doesn't change that God did it. Just because man is involved doesn't mean that God is not involved. The fact is that God has used man since God made man. If God wasn't going to use man, he would not have made man. But he made man and he gave man a job and God always sees to it that his job is done and that his words are preserved and he has promised to do it. There are some things God lets man mess up, and there are some things he does not. There are some copies of God's word he has allowed man to mess up, and there are many that he has not allowed man to mess up. So this is the inspiration and the preservation of God's word. The first great law that you must submit to if you would avoid being unruly. If you are willing to be governed by God, are you willing today? Are you willing? Are you? I'm talking to you. Are you willing to be governed today by God? If you are willing to be governed by God, then the first thing that you're going to have to realize is that that gospel, that book that you have right there is the word of God. And you must not be moved away from your faith that that is God's word. If the devil moves you away from your faith that that is God's word, you are unruly from that point on. You are out from under God's authority, out from under God's governance. And the sky is the limit. 
and hell is the depths that you will go to in your false doctrine and your errors if you leave the Bible, if you leave God's holy word. The second great pillar, the second great law that you must understand is that the Bible is always right. Say that with me. You don't have to say it loud, at least in your heart. The Bible is always right. There's a big word for that called infallibility infallible. The Bible is without error. It has no mistakes in it. Go to John in your Bible, John chapter 10 and verse 35. John chapter 10. Jesus Christ here makes a statement, a shocking statement, a bedrock statement, a statement you need to burn in your soul. He says here in the latter part of verse 35, quoting a scripture from the Psalms that called the people gods, and it says there with a lower G, and we won't get into the doctrine of that today. It's a wonderful study and worthwhile and worth time. But for now, let's focus on the second part of that verse. And the scripture cannot be broken. Christ said that. Christ said the scripture cannot be broken. Now you can break God's law in the sense of disobeying it, and you can break a tablet of stone that has God's word on it, and you can break a book and break the binding and break out the pages and you can burn the book, but Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. He was not talking about tablets of stone, he was talking about the agreement of scripture with scripture and the truth and veracity of the word of God. There is no error in in the Bible. Jesus said the scripture cannot be broken. Now we'll see many more verses about this subject as we study, as we dial in and study on the third law that we'll get to in just a moment. So I'm not going to take much time here, but you must get this in your heart. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. There are no contradictions in your Bible. There are only apparent contradictions. It might look like it's a contradiction, but it's not a contradiction. Now, that can't be said of every Bible. I'm not saying this by blind faith, by the way. I'm not saying there's no contradictions because I'm refusing to look at them. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying that when you study the Bible, the Word of God, the real, inspired, preserved Word of God, not some fake knockoff that's been watered down, milked out, and left dry and put out to pasture by man, I'm talking about the actual Word of God. There are no contradictions. When you study it out and you seek God, with a humble heart, the Bible always shows itself to be true. And there is not one contradiction in the Bible. That can't be said of every copy and every version out there, but it can be said of the word of God. And I'm preaching to you today out of the word of God. We'll get to translations a little bit later. Now, that is the second law of understanding the Bible. You must get this law down. You must get this settled. If you would be ruly, if you would be governed by God, if you, would wa- if you want God to be your king, if you want Christ to be your king, there's people that, have, that talk about Christ the king, and, the, and they have all this weird eschatology where they, they call it kingdom now theology, and they say Christ is their king, but they are unruly and vain talkers. They deny things in the Bible. They twist things in the Bible. They rest scriptures. If you want Christ to be your king, 
then you must get under his governance. And if you would be under Christ's governance, you've got to abide by his word. In the word of a king, there is power. You go off and break the scriptures in your own mind. They're not broken to God, but they're broken for you and you're going to go into error. This is the second great law, the infallibility of the Bible. The third great law that we're going to look at today of rightly understanding the Bible, of rightly interpreting the Bible, is that the Bible is self-existent. We could say this in one word by the word complete. The Bible is complete. And this is where we want to camp out for the rest of our lesson today. We're going to split this into two subjects, the canonization of God's word and the interpretation interpretation of God's word. Two fancy words. I'll break them down for you. And it's easy to understand. I had somebody ask me not too long ago how you could know that these books were the right books to be in the Bible. This is what we're talking about right now. The canonization of God's word, 66, not 67, not 65, 66 perfect exclusive books of the Bible. There are five ways that we can know that the Bible is exactly and perfectly complete. And we're going to look at those right here, right now, Lord willing. First of all, the Bible is self-existent in its canonization by the instruction shown to be so by the perfect harmony in doctrine. This is particularly brought to the forefront and manifested in the doctrine of Christ. Go to Galatians chapter 1 and verse 8. In every area, in every matter, in everything that the Bible says, the Bible agrees with the Bible. Over thousands of years and multiple authors, ranging from tens and twenties to possibly hundreds, if you count the penmen and how many more thousands, if you count those that God used to preserve it, the scribes that copied it year after year after year after year, and yet through all those years and all those pens and all those men and all the potential for error, yet the Bible stands perfectly, 100% pure, and walks in harmony with itself. It is self-existent, and it proves it by its perfect harmony. The Bible does not need commentary to prop it up. The Bible does not need a certificate of ratification from an archaeological society to prop it up. The Bible stands on its own. The Bible stands in its perfect harmony. Galatians chapter 1 and (coughs) Galatians 1 and verse 8. But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we said before, so say I now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. Unruly. Unruly and vain talkers will tell you that we're all trying to serve God. We're all God's children. People all over the world, they don't, they just don't know the doctrine. They don't quite know what you know, but at least they're seeking God. And God says here, if we preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The Bible is harmonious throughout. It agrees with itself perfectly with no contradiction, no error, no 
shade, no shadow of doubt, no shadow of turning, no change in God. God is the same God from the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 to the end of Revelation chapter 22 where the Bible closes out with the words of Christ as we will look at in the um, just a little bit. Here the Bible is perfect and in harmony with itself. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. Again, here we are dealing with the laws that you must have in your heart in order to be ruly, to be governed by God, to avoid being unruly. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 3. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine, which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words. I think the word means this. A better translation would be, if you go back to the Greek, you can find it this way and that means this. And I think it should be said this way. He says he is proud knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth supposing that gain is is godliness. Uh, from such withdraw thyself. Now the Bible already told us in 1 Thessalonians that the that these unruly should be warned and we looked at it in Titus 1 and verse 10 that there are many unruly and vain talkers who teach things for filthy lucre's sake who subvert whole houses. The money is what's behind all of this racket and all of the false Bible racket and there are a lot of false Bibles and a lot of subversive teachers out there today increasing and waxing worse and worse. He says, these men are perverse, disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, constantly questioning the Bible, constantly undermining the truth of the Bible, constantly bringing in doubtful disputations about things that the Bible clearly states because they do not believe that the Bible is God's word. They do not believe he inspired it. (coughs) They do not believe he preserved it. They do not believe the Bible is always right. And they do not believe the Bible is self-existent. They do not believe it is complete in its self-existence. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3, he says, Teach no other doctrine. Teach no other doctrine. You do not have the right to introduce unbiblical doctrines. You're wrong. That is unruly. It is not your right. There is no free speech in God's economy. There's only God's speech. God's word will stand when man's word is burnt in the lake of fire. It says here in chapter um, 1 and verse 3, he says that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine, neither give heed to faith and to endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edifying which is in faith, so do. He's telling them, charge some to teach no other doctrine. The Bible is exclusive in its doctrine. The Bible is exact in its doctrine. The Bible is harmonious in its doctrine. The Bible does not leave room for debate. The Bible does not leave room for doubt. The Bible does not leave room for deliberation. The Bible is complete. It is accurate. It is self-existent. Go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. 
want you to see this and we'll look at the next reason. First, the first reason we can see that the Bible is complete in its 66 books is the perfect harmony of the Word of God. Philippians, um, but somebody might say, what if another man showed up that could make a book that was equally harmonious? A book that had equal seeming inspiration. We'll look at that in just a second here. Philippians 4, 8 will, will kind of tie us in there. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. This is the harmony of the Bible. Anything that lacks truth, justice, purity, loveliness, good report, virtue, praise, anything that falls short of this mark and that is outside of that mark and is spurious in any way cannot be part of the Bible. This is why, and we'll talk, we might talk on that later if we get a chance to. This is why many of these books like the Apocrypha have been excluded from the word of God by God's people and only included in the word of God by the devil's people throughout the ages. Now, Philippians here in the next verse, verse 9, this is where it ties us in. Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. And this brings us to the apostolic authority of the 66 books of the Bible, the apostolic and prophetic authority of these books. In the Old Testament, the prophets were the ones that God used to give us the books of the Old Testament. I believe it's 39. In the New Testament, God used the apostles to give us the remaining of the 66 books. So here, let's go to 2 Thessalonians. Let's go back to our text today. If there's anything that I can give you, any gift that I can give you, any hope that I can give you to establish your hearts and help you to stand in this evil day, this is it. A sure faith in the word of God, an understanding that the Bible is God's word, the Bible is always right, and that the Bible is self-existent. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14. (coughs) Now we warn you, we exhort you, brethren... I'm in the wrong Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 14. And if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no fellowship with him. I'm sorry, and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. He said, if any man obey not our word by this epistle. So he said, if if these men will not obey this book of the Bible, in this case, 2 Thessalonians, mark that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. We're talking about apostolic authority here. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. It says here, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me. He did not say which thou hast heard of all those who speak of the things that they saw and heard that came out of Judea. He did not say to get the conglomerate of every man's opinion and to gather all of the different um, commentaries and to get everybody's news articles and to gather all the archaeology theological evidence. He said, hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me. And there he brought his apostolic authority to bear. Second Timothy chapter three and verse 10, it says, but thou hast fully known my doctrine. Now what preacher in his right mind would stand up to the church and say, you have known my doctrine. 
He might say it and then probably correct himself if he catches himself and say, it's not really mine anyway. It's God's given to us by the apostles. But here the apostle Paul says, thou hast fully known my doctrine. This is apostolic authority. Go to 1 Timothy 1 and verse 3. The Bible is clear that there are 12 apostles of the Lamb handpicked by Christ who were required in order to be an apostle of the Lamb alive through throughout Christ's ministry, a witness of Christ's earthly ministry in their physical flesh, and then to be selected and ordained by Jesus Christ himself, not by a successor. These are the 12 apostles, and whenever we talk about the apostolic authority of the Bible, that is what gives its authority, and that is why so many people want to pretend to be apostles today and run around as fake lying apostles because they want to have equal authority with the Bible, and they are unruly and vain talkers whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses teaching things they should not for filthy lucre sake they're after your money you got to get back to the bible first timothy 1 and verse 3 he says and we saw this one earlier that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine (coughs) now once you go to Psalm 147, here's an, here's an aspect, an, an area that we can see the reality of the canonization of the scripture that I never saw before just this week. It really just blew my mind away whenever I saw it. I should have seen it because it's right there in the Bible. As we go there, I want to say something else about that apostolic authority. That apostolic authority and the canonization of the scriptures is this, that the apostles, the 12 apostles of the Lamb are those that certified and ratified what we know to be true about Christ and anything that contradicts what the 12 apostles gave us, some of them silently in agreement with the main speaking apostles, but the 12 of them in their unity gave us what we have today that has completed the 66 books of the Bible. And if you go outside of those 66 books, you are going outside of that which God gave us through his holy apostles. It's a great error. Get under authority. You better be under apostolic authority. You better get under the word of God. You get out from under the word of God, add to the word of God, take away from the word of God, and you are an unruly and vain talker whose mouth must be stopped. Look at Psalm 147 and verse 19. He showeth his word unto Jacob his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. He hath not dealt so with any nation. Go to Romans chapter 3. Here God gives us another piece of evidence. Pay close attention here. How do you know that those 66 books of the Bible are the right books? How do you know that your Bible is complete? Because God gave the word. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his 
statutes and his judgments unto Israel. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Romans chapter 3 and verse 1. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Anything that is not of Jewish origin is not of the word of God. And not everything that is of Jewish origin, particularly the man named origin, all that is not of Jewish origin is all that is of Jewish origin is not of God necessarily, but all the scriptures are. This immediately draws the curtain down on Buddhism. This immediately lets the axe fall on the neck of Islam. This immediately spiritually cuts off Confucianism. This immediately cuts off Jehovah's Witness doctrine. This immediately cuts off all Mormonism. This immediately cuts off Satanism. This immediately cuts off nine 99.9% of false religion in the world. He hath not showed it. He hath not dealt so with any nation. This cuts off your traditionalist <coughs> viewpoints in every pagan national religion across the face of the earth. If your Bible is not in its very essence Jewish, if you have added to it from other religions and other cults and other groups and other nationalities, then you have a fake Bible. Because God gave us the word through Jacob, his statutes and his judgments in Israel. He hath not dealt so with any other nation. And it says, what advantage then hath the Jew or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. So you can immediately look up here today. You can immediately cut off and eliminate every other philosopher and scholar and false religion and other idea on the face of the planet and limit your search for the pure word of God to that which came from Israel. Hallelujah. By the way, Jesus was a Jew and Jesus is the word of God. How about that? I can't believe I missed this all this time. The word of God came from Israel. There is nothing in these 66 books of the Bible that does not have as its origin a Jew. This is the record all through this Bible of what God showed the Jewish nation so that they could be a light to lighten the Gentiles. Even those men that God used that were not Jews who may have comments and things written in this Bible, those men are included by Jews who God told to include them or they are speaking what Jews said and giving us an account of what Jews said. Isn't that amazing? We've got a Jewish Bible where the Jews have erred. If you'll read on in Romans chapter three is that they left the righteousness of God and went about to establish their own righteousness and they fell from the righteousness of God. Now, moving on from there and they will return 
to Christ. So these are three ways that we can see the Bible's self-existence so far. We have two more. We looked at the perfect harmony of the doctrine of the Word of God, particularly the doctrine of Christ. We looked at the apostolic authority of the Word of God and of the doctrines of the Word of God. We looked at the Jewish origin, the nationality from which sprang the Word of God. And now we're looking at the certification of the Word of God by the church. The Word of God has been certified and soaked in the blood of the church that Christ bought with his own blood and it has been certified and soaked in blood as the 66 books of the Bible. These are the books of the Bible that the martyrs have died for. Now there have been martyrs that have died for Muhammad. There have been martyrs that have died for Buddha. There have been martyrs that have died for all the different faiths in the world including the Catholic faith which is no more Christian than Buddhism. They're the exact same thing just one has Christian stuff plastered all over it, Christian stickers put over it. But the the word of God, the 66 books of the Bible are certified and soaked in the blood of the church of Jesus Christ. Go to 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. This is the fourth way, the fourth piece of evidence that you can know that the Bible is self-existence, existent and complete in its entirety. Second Timothy 2 and verse 2. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. The word of God was committed to faithful men by those who heard the word preached as among many witnesses. And the many witnesses of the church agree. This ties into translation so so tightly that it's hard to not dive off into that. But we don't have time to get into great detail. Only know this, that the received text that has been passed down throughout the, and not the one that Erasmus compiled, but I'm talking about the conglomeration of manuscript evidence that was passed on by the church from the first century AD to the 21st century AD. That manuscript evidence that has passed on that agrees in its entirety, it agrees in its body, it agrees in its numerical strength, it agrees as many witnesses, gives us the perfect and preserved word of God. Again, translation we will deal with at another time, but there's only one translation in English that has as its roots the great and and completely harmonious evidence of of the text that have been passed on from generation to generation by the church. Go to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. You see here in English, we have the one Bible that we use, but you can't read it in German. And you can't read it in South African. And you need the Bible in your language, and it is available. God has promised to preserve his word. And if you can't get a copy of the perfectly preserved word of God in your English, it can be translated perfectly. Because God will oversee it if God's people want it. And he's done that for the English-speaking people. And that's why I preach out of the authorized version Bible. The only Bible that is accurate and true with the texts that have been passed down throughout the centuries. Acts chapter 5. Let's look at how God certified the Word of God. Acts 5.28. 
Here the high priest told the apostles, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted and with his right hand to be a prince and a savior for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Listen to this. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost. (coughs) Excuse me. And so is also the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. When they heard that, which is the word, by the way, and it's preserved right here in the word of God. When they heard the word of God spoken to them by these men, it says they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Go down to verse 40. They got talked out of slaying them. My Gamaliel, and it says unto him they agreed, and when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer, um, to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Go to Acts chapter 6. We'll, we won't even read those. Acts 6 and Acts 7, and the persecution that rose about Stephen, who was preaching the word of God. Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Do you see it there? They went everywhere preaching the word. And as they went preaching the word, as the ages rolled by, They carried the word of God. And over time, they went from carrying small portions to being able to have larger portions to being able finally with the invention of the printing press to have the complete word of God in single volumes readily available for any man that wants it. But they have carried the word of God. William Tyndall, other men shed their blood and died to give us the complete word of God. The 66 books of the Bible. It was always, always extra church groups that brought in other books of the Bible. Some unruly vain talkers will say the King James Bible you preach from when it was first printed had apocryphal books in it. Those were inserted by order of Mr. King James. And they were inserted as a side and made clear that they were not part of the Bible, but they were merely put there to get the official stamp so that they could get the true word of God to people. And as soon as they could get clearance and as soon as they could print it without all that extra junk, they cut it out. Cut it all out. But they will tell you that. And their mouths must be stopped. There are many more things that they'll tell you. Much more junk. You've got to get the law, these laws in your heart that the Bible is God's word. The Bible is always right. The Bible is self-existent. It is complete. Finally, how do you know? Finally, in the canonization. And then we get into interpretation. Lord, have mercy on us. 
Finally, in the canonization, how do you know that you have the 66 books of the Bible? The Bible says in John 1, 1, go to Revelation, but in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 14, or John 1, 14, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. My hands are handling the word of life right now. As I preach the word of life, Jesus Christ. No, he's in heaven seated at the right hand of the father, but his perfectly preserved inspired word is right here in my hand today. First John five, seven, the Bible says for there are three that bear record in heaven, the father, the word and the Holy ghost. And these three are one in revelation. Revelation chapter 19. You should be there in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 13. He was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. Jesus Christ coming back with eyes as a flame of fire with a tongue as a with a sword coming out of his mouth that he would smite the nations with. And it says he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. Jesus Christ. Go to the final chapter of Revelation 22 and verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and morning star and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that heareth say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take the water of life freely. That's the Bible, by the way, the water of life, the water of the word. He says, whosoever will let him take the water of life freely from this point here at about roughly 83 AD, about 83 years after Christ was born. The last living apostle, John, the revelator is giving us the revelation of God by inspiration of the Holy ghost. And as all the other books of the Bible have been completed and finished and have been written and have been preserved and are in circulation at this point, Christ says, whosoever will let him take of the water, take the water of life freely. For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Hold this book up. Jesus Christ ratified it. That means made it sure and made it valid. And Jesus Christ sealed it and closed it. It says, he which testifieth of these things saith, surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. An, a normal Bible will say something like the end of the New Testament. That part was not inspired by God, but it is accurate in the extreme. There is nothing else to be added to the New Testament. This is the complete word of God. I hope today that you have found a resting place, a resting place in the word of God, that it is God's word, that it is always right, and that it is self-existent, that it is complete in its canonization. (coughs) The 66 books of the Bible. Notice I did not cite a single council 
in giving you evidence that the Bible is God's book. Why? Because the Bible stands with or without councils. The Bible stands with or without church groups. The Bible stands with or without denominations. The Bible is self-existent, self-propagating, and it is self-preserving because the Bible is God's word. And the Bible stands. Now, in the interpretation of the Bible, we're going to try and move quickly in this. The Bible is self-existent in its interpretation. It is self-explanatory. The Bible defines the Bible. The Bible stands as a great rock pillar, and at the base of the pillar, littered all around the base of the pillar, are piles of books of commentary, piles of books of scholastic theology, piles of books of systematic theology, piles of books of of discipleship courses and of people's comments and philosophers. There's piles of science and scientists and different works of archaeologists piled all around the great pillar of God's word. But when the fires come, all of those will burn away and the pillar, the great rock, the word of God will stand. The Bible stands. The Bible stands, though the hills may crumble. The Bible stands. The Bible will always stand. When Bible time has gone offline for the last time and the last sermon has been deleted and the last notebook that I ever wrote notes in has burned in the fire of the judgment of God or the wrath of man, God's Bible will still stand. When this sermon is no longer available to be listened to, the Bible will still stand. The Bible is self-existent. Go to 1 Peter 1.20. 1 Peter 1.20, the Bible defines the Bible. The, The biggest single thing you've got to learn about the Bible. If you're going to be ruly, if you're going to be governed by the Bible, if you would escape the snare of the devil and the error of the wicked, the first thing that you have got to get down as you try to interpret the Bible is that the Bible interprets the Bible. The Bible defines the Bible. The Bible is a self-existent book. The Bible stands without any kind of helps. The Bible stands without any um, illustration books or guides to the Bible. I know some preachers who enjoy using those, and I know some men who have gotten help from those things, but ultimately the Bible stands on its own two feet. The Bible stands. The Bible stands. We're going to look at five ways here real quickly. The Bible stands literally and accurately at face value. God says what he means. The Bible says to rightly divide the word of truth. That would be 2 Timothy 2.15. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15. It says, Study to show thyself approved, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. The Bible stands at face value, rightly divided. It means exactly what it says. It means what God said. God says what he means and he means what he says. All these people that come and try with their unruly talking to say what the Bible really means here, what that really means, what God is really saying here, watch out. Get your antenna up. Get your radar turned on. The Bible, rightly divided, says what it means and means what it says every single time. The Bible must be taken in its context. Go to 2 Peter 3.16. 2 Peter 3 and verse 16. He's speaking of his brother Paul, and it says, As also in all his wisdom, in all his epistles... 
That's your Bible. Epistles are the letters called First and Second Thessalonians, Colossians, etc. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Well, the Bible is literal and accurate. The Bible can be taken out of context and made a mud hole with your mind. The Bible must be rightly divided. You've got to put apples with apples and oranges with oranges. When God says um, to Jacob, he says, oh, Jacob, he means, oh, Jacob. He does not mean First Baptist of Wilmington. He means, oh, Jacob. And if you want to take an application from what he said to Jacob, you're free to do that within the confines of Scripture. But I'm telling you, you must be governed by the Bible. And God says what he means. You do not have the right to redefine what God said. Now, here's where most people will do it. We're going to look at the next part of biblical interpretation. First of all, the Bible's literal and accurate. Secondly, the Bible must be spiritually discerned. And because of this, many people will say, well, the Bible's spiritual. And they'll say, well, that's not really an ox cart. That's a spiritual analogy. And they'll use this kind of verbiage and their mouths must be stopped. They're unruly and vain talkers. They depart from the literal, accurate word of God and they give you their opinions as doctrine. And their mouths must be stopped. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Bible says, The natural man receiveth not the things of God. They are foolishness to him. I better look it up. Finish looking it up or I'll butcher it. 1 Corinthians 2.14 The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, it did not say that the Bible is a spiritual allegory. It says that the Bible must be spiritually discerned. He says in verse 13, which things also we speak not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual the Bible must be spiritually discerned. John 6 and verse 63, Jesus Christ speaking to a group of people that could not understand him, even though he was speaking plainly to them. He says in John 6, 63, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. Now all the spiritualists out there who want to say that it's all spiritual allegories, what are they going to do with the fact that Jesus said, as he spoke literal words, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The literal words that Jesus literally spoke that literally meant what he literally said were literally spirit. Spirit is literal and it's true. Spirit is not ephemeral. It's not cloudy. It's not some kind of nebula out there. It seems to be that way to the lost man. It seems to be that way to the natural man because we are dead in trespasses and sins. The Bible says the spiritual man judgeth all things, but is judged of no man. Why? Because no man can see the spiritual man, but the spiritual is more real than the physical. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Go to John chapter four real quick. 
John chapter 4 and verse 24. We're right next to it. Here, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And this ties the two things together. God, who is a spirit, made a literal world with literal people, with literal laws and literal facts and literal truth. And God, who is a spirit, commands us to worship him in spirit and in truth. And if you divorce spirit from truth, you have a train wreck. You are unruly. You are out from under the governance of the word of God. If you would submit to King Jesus, if you would enthrone him on your heart, if you would obey and follow the Lord and Savior, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. The word of God, the literal raw reality truth that God placed in his Bible spiritually discerned for its literal truth. Don't let people spin you in circles. Don't let people take you on a spiritual trip that takes you off the sure footing of the firm foundation of the more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. As unto a light shining in a dark place until the day star dawn and the day dawn in your hearts. I butchered that one up. That's in Peter somewhere. Don't let them move you off the rock. Don't let them move you with spiritual experiences. Stand on the word. The Bible is a self-existent book. It doesn't need some kind of guru to come and interpret it spiritually. It's got truth in it. And the truth is literal. But the truth must have spiritual life infused in it for it to have any kind of benefit in your soul. And we'll look at that a little bit more when we get down to our fit, our fourth part of interpretation. So our first part of interpretation, the Bible is literal and accurate and must be taken at face value in its context, rightly divided. Second part here, the Bible must be spiritually discerned. There must be spiritual life in you and and teaching you for you to have any kind of true benefit from God's word. Beware those that mess with God's word under the pretense of spiritualizing it. Lord, help me today. I don't know how much we will get into translation, but a true translation of the word of God is not an interpretation. And an interpretation is not a translation. Just as the word of God is literal... And just as the word of God must be taken at face value, the word of God must be translated at face value, literally, word for word, meaning for meaning, both of them. Some people say, well, this Bible isn't word for word, but it's meaning for meaning hogwash. If it's not word for word, it's not meaning for meaning. And then they say, well, this one isn't meaning for meaning. It's word for word. If you did that, then you broke it because it must be meaning for meaning as well as word for word. Let me help you here. When you change languages, some languages take three words to say literally what another word says in one word. And in order for it to be a word-for-word translation, which is impossible in the sense that you don't, there's no one word that will say it, it must say exactly, in however many words it's got to say to say it, the exact same thing that the other one said with its words. The words and the meanings must perfectly agree and harmonize or you have distorted God's word. 
And people today think that they can take their meaning or allegorize things or take something that's an equivalent. But God's word, when it's translated, if you want God's word, must be perfectly taken at face value and literal. Or it's not a translation, it's an interpretation. And we have so-called Bible translators all over the world who are taking liberties with God's word and interpreting the word of God into other languages. And they say, well, these people don't have the right words. We can't, their language won't handle the Bible. Their vocabulary is too small. Then build their vocabulary for Christ's sake. Whatever happened, what happened to the minds of this generation of these people where we're supposed to get dumber instead of wiser? The reason, the reason that America became great is because America submitted itself to the word of God to some extent and to the degree that America as a nation bent itself to God's word and uh, and. Uh, respected and reverenced and revered God's word, God raised up the nation to carry forward his word. When they translated the word of God into English over in England, there were words in the English language. There were missing words in the English language and they could not translate it accurately. Instead of interpreting the Bible and doing some kind of modern interpretive verbal dance with the scriptures, what they did was they transliterated the Bible. They took the word in the Greek and they took phonetics and root words that had similar meanings and they made up new English words, completely new English words like baptism made a whole new word to express, to make it sound like it would fit in the English language and then assign to it the same definition and meaning that it had in the Greek. Hence, baptizo being baptized. If I got that exactly right, I'm no Greek scholar. But in any case, what they did was they brought the English language up to the Bible, not the Bible down to the language. God have mercy on translators who bring the Bible down to the language instead of raising the language up to the Bible. You say, well, the Bible's supposed to be easy to understand. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Just hang in there. So our first part here, the Bible of interpretation, the Bible is literal and accurate, must be taken at face value. God says what he means. The Bible must be rightly divided, must be taken in context. The Bible must be spiritually discerned. Secondly, we looked at that. Thirdly, here in the interpretation of the self-existent word of God, let's look at the fact that, it, that the Bible is a mystery in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7. 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7, and then we will also go back to 2 Peter 3, which we will probably do again at the end. We've been there, that'll probably be four times we go to 2 Peter 3 and verse 16, but that's okay. It's useful. 1 Corinthians 2, 7, he said, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory. The hidden wisdom, the wisdom of God in a mystery. So the third point here is that the truth of the word of God is a mystery and it is hidden. The truth of the word of God is a mystery and it is hidden. The Bible, we will, we'll get to how to understand the Bible because it is understandable. We'll get to that. But before we get there, you have to understand that it's not understandable. 
This is why we already said the Bible is spiritually discerned. The natural man receiveth not the things of God. In 2 Peter 3.16, here Peter says of Paul's epistles, in which are some things hard to be understood. In which are some things hard to be understood. Go to the book of Ephesians. There's some things here in the Bible that are hard to be understood. There are some things that are mysteries. Some of those mysteries have been revealed. Some have not. He says here in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 3, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. God by revelation made known unto the apostle Paul the mystery. As I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the sand of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. The word of God is a mystery. Ephesians 4 and verse 18. It says here of the Gentiles who do not believe in God, he says to, uh, that we should not walk as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. So while the Bible is to be understood, which will be our fourth point in the interpretation of the Bible, you have to understand that the Bible is understandable and that it, you can grasp it. You need to know that. But before you know that you need to know that the literal accurate face value perfect word of God it must be spiritually discerned because it is a mystery and that the mysteries that are all through it are hidden wisdom hidden by God hidden from the natural man you must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God you must be born again be not drunk with wine wherein is excess but be filled with the spirit you must be filled with the spirit speaking to one another in psalms hymns spiritual songs singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. You must be filled with the Spirit and get your understanding from the Spirit. We're going to look at that for just a minute. But before we look at the understandability of the Bible, for all of those out there that under the pretense of making the Bible understandable would add to and take away from God's Word, you are unruly and vain talkers whose mouths must be stopped subverting whole houses and teaching things that ye ought not for filthy lucre sake. The Bible stands. The Bible is self-defining. The Bible is self-interpreting. The Bible is self-existent. The Bible is of no private interpretation. And you do not have the right to alter the Bible so that you in your high-minded pride and arrogance as you know nothing, doubting and doubting and putting out doubtful disputations, you think that you're smart enough to dumb the Bible down and Preserve the truth of God's word. And in that case, sir, you are acting the fool. Get your hands off of God's word until you're ready to read it and believe it. So-called fundamentalists even fall into this trap, taking the word of God, and they go out to try and interpret it in missions somewhere to a tribe somewhere, and they say, my people won't be able to understand this concept. How can I say this? And they find some kind of idiom or some kind of little quaint story, and then they kind of reinvent what Jesus said to make it fit inside the mindset and the lowered mental abilities of the tribes people they're dealing with, and it's sin. 
Don't tamper with God's word. If you want to use idioms and you want to use little stories and fables, well, you're teaching and what is as illustrations to help elucidate and illuminate the scripture, go for it. But the moment you try and enter into the realm of interpretation and dumbing down the Bible and translating the Bible in a false interpretation, using these things, you have entered into a unruly situation, a ungoverned situation. You are out from under the authority of God and the authority of God's word. The Bible is a mystery. Throughout it, it's full of mysteries. And the wisdom of God throughout the Bible is hidden wisdom. You cannot make it understandable with your knowledge. What foolhardiness. What absolute tomfoolery. What an absolute sham to think that you can unlock the mysteries of God to people's minds with your interpretive skills and your pen and your keyboard. What a sham. Now, the word of God is understandable and you've got to get this and I want you to get it. I want you to get it down like bedrock in your soul. You can understand the Bible, but how? We're going to look at two more things. Lord willing, we'll be done. First of all, you can understand the Bible because it is alive. Go to 2 Timothy 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And verse 15, he says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. I can't shout loud enough to communicate this truth the way it needs to be communicated. What is able to make him wise unto salvation? The holy scriptures. Not your cheap knockoff so-called version that you have reinterpreted to make it so-called quote-unquote understandable. The holy scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You can understand the Bible. You can through the scriptures. You say, how can I understand the Bible? The Bible. You say, that doesn't work for me. That's your problem. How can I understand the Bible? I need another Bible scholar. I need another professor. I need another podcast. I need another sermon. I need something else. But you won't go to God alone with your Bible and get on your face and read it for yourself and ask God for understanding. And that's why it's a closed book. If you're saved and it's still a closed book. The Bible is a self-existent, self-interpreting, self-defining, accurate, literal, spiritually discerned mystery that can be understood because it is alive. And the Bible itself is able to make you wise unto salvation. The scriptures are able to make thee wise unto salvation. You see, say, I need another teacher. You just need your Bible. You just need your Bible. Get back to your Bible. You say, I'm under conviction. God's using you in my life, so I'm going to keep listening. If you're under conviction, shut the thing off, get your Bible, get in your closet, and read it. Come back later if God gives you liberty, and if not, I won't cry. You don't need me. You need God. You need the Bible. That's the whole reason we do this podcast. It's called Bible Time. The whole purpose of it is to get the Bible out there in front of people. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick. That means alive. The word of God is quick and powerful. That's lowercase w, by the way. It's not talking about Jesus Christ, the man. 
The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, Jesus Christ, the man, Jesus Christ, God, Jesus Christ, the Word, and the Word of God itself, by nature of Christ being the Word, are all one thing, one and the same. But in this sense, it's talking about the actual spoken and written Word. The words that you're looking at on your page as you read Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 are alive. These words are powerful. These words are sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. If you're willing, you can understand the Bible, but it will do surgery on you. And that's the other reason most people won't go to the Bible. A Bible teacher won't do surgery on you, but the Bible will. The Bible will cut you to the quick. Ephesians 1, 17, here's a, a prayer from the Apostle Paul for this church. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. The spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Look at verse 18. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward who believe according to the working of His mighty power. Ephesians 3.18, His desire for the church at Ephesus is that ye may, he says, may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ. Many people have preached on that. That's four dimensions, and we live in a three-dimensional world. Up, we're not going to get into all that right now. Skipping on. But in any case, you can comprehend it, but it takes God doing it. In Luke 24, 45, it says, Jesus then opened he their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures. So first here in interpretation, the Bible is literal. It means what it says. The Bible, secondly, is spiritually discerned. Thirdly, it is a mystery and it is hidden. But fourthly, it is understandable because it is alive and it will teach you. The Holy Spirit of God working through it will teach you. Fifthly, and this is where most people bow out and quit right here. You can just shut it off right here because this is what most people won't even do. Fifthly, understanding and rightly dividing the Word of God requires labor. Labor. Hebrews 4.11, we just looked at the Word being quick and powerful. Verse 11, the verse right before that, says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. You say, but preacher, you just told me that the natural man cannot receive the things of God. So if I sit here and work and read and read and read till I'm blue in the face, I'm never going to get it in the natural man. No, you're not. And then you say, so I'm just going to sit here and wait for a download from heaven. Well, you're not going to get it that way either. Because God has ordained human means to spiritual ends over and over and over again. And God requires that you study to show thyself approved. That's God's way. A laborer, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Let's go to 1 Timothy 5.17. We're going to look at just a few verses and shut it down. 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. It is labor to get in the Bible and read it and seek God for understanding of doctrine. 
It is a labor. Uh, let's look at Isaiah 28. We can't get by without going to this one. Here he says that the word of God must be a line upon line, precept upon precept. Most people never look at the context, and that's par for the course. Let's look at why. This is an incredible truth. Again, we're wrapping up on our third law that the Bible is self-existent. When we've seen that the Bible is God's word, the Bible is always right, the Bible is self-existent. That means the Bible's divine, it's infallible, it's complete. It stands alone. Isaiah 28 and verse 10 For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, and there a little. And this gets said all the time without the context. He says in verse 11, For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith ye may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Verse 13, But the word of the Lord was unto them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they may go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. How is that positive? Well, it's not for you. But it's reality. It's truth, whether you like it or whether it sounds good or not. God is saying here that if you are going to know God's word, if you look at verse 9, whom shall he teach knowledge and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts for precept must be upon precept. He did it this way so that you have to labor. If you won't labor, you won't get it. And most people won't labor, so most people won't get it. And because most people won't labor, they go and fall backward and are broken and snared and taken. It takes constant, regular, disciplined exposure to the Word of God to learn the Word of God. You say, but the natural man cannot receive the things of God. You just told me that, so it does no use for me to labor at it. It's, that's wrong. Your natural man cannot receive it, but God will not impart it unless you force your natural man to try. That's God's way. And when you force your natural man to try and your natural man fails to comprehend it and you're sitting there praying and seeking God's face and reading your Bible for the dozenth time over and over and over and over again, maybe the hundredth time you're reading through your Bible. Somebody tells me, oh, I read through the Bible once. Oh, I read through the Bible twice. That's a great start. That's a great start. How about a hundred? When you've read your Bible through over and over and over and over again, God teaches you a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit here, and a little bit there, and that's God. how God does it. And there are no shortcuts. You say, the Bible needs to be understandable. All right, all you Bible translator fakos out there, here's your problem. You're trying to make a cheap, easy made... You're trying to make a cheap, easy Bible is what you're doing. You're trying to shortcut what God has designed and give people your understanding that you think you've accumulated instead of God's wisdom. And it's not going to work. It will not work. The only way that you're going to understand the Bible that is understandable. They say the Bible should be understandable. I say to them, it is. Do you hear me today? It doesn't need you to make it understandable. It's self-existent and it is already understandable. But if you're going to understand it, it's a mystery. It's hidden wisdom. Your natural man can't receive it and you're going to have to labor at it and seek God for it. And if you will, you will find what you're looking for. You go to a shortcut, you're dead in the water. 
You say, oh, I like this Bible. It's easier to understand. You just told me everything I need to know about you. Everything I need to know about your spirituality and how much you love God. Whenever you say, I like this Bible better, it's easier to understand. You're saying, I will not put work into knowing God. I would rather be able to take this little Bible and read something that I can comprehend with my natural man than labor to discern doctrine and rightly divide the word of truth. You're just exposing yourself. 2 Timothy 2.15 Again, study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Remember 2 Peter 3.16 Let's go back there. We'll finish there with 2 Peter 3.16. What are you going to be? Who are you going to be? You're going to be the unruly, the vain talker? He says here in 2 Peter 3.16, As also, speaking of Paul's epistles, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Who is it that's resting the scriptures? They that are unlearned and unstable. They would not labor. They would not submit themselves to God's ways. They would not come to God His way, submitting to His governance and His perfect word. And they're unlearned and unstable, and they rest scriptures. I talk to these people all the time. I have talked to hundreds and thousands of these people. And you cannot reason with them. I try and show them Bible verses, and whatever verse doesn't agree with their preconceived ideas about God, they write it off with the flip of a wrist, and they don't even give it a second thought, and they go on still in their trespass. God said he's going to wound their scalp. He'll wound the hairy scalp of them that go on still in their trespass. These are three laws, three laws to obey if you would be ruly, three ways to avoid being unruly. Understand that the Bible is God's word. It is divine. The Bible is always right. It is infallible. The Bible is self-existent. The Bible is complete. As we close here today, the word of God in English, for those of you that are speaking English today, is the only Bible, the only translation that matches the description that I've given you today is the authorized version Bible. And right up into the late 1800s, we had our seventh revision of the authorized version Bible that kept it absolutely accurately in line with the text passed down by God, preserved by God, and it is the Word of God in English, perfectly preserved and inspired by God. The King James Bible alone stands alone in the English language. Maybe you're listening and you come from another nationality and you say, what is it in my language? I don't know, but you can find it. If you will use these laws that God has given us in his word, you can find out if you have the Bible in your language or if you don't. And if you don't, these laws give you the key to getting it. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would use this word, and I pray that you'd help us to stand for your word and not to back down. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.